You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a keynote lecture from Exploring the Transnational Neighbourhood, Integration, Community and Cohabitation. This conference, which was supported by the UCD Humanities Institute, the Institute of Modern Language Research, School of Advanced Study at the University of London and the Cross Languages Dynamics Project, took place on the 25th and 26th of September 2019 at UCD Humanities Institute. The final keynote, Language and the Neighbourhood, how Multilingualism Redefines Community was given by Yaron Matras from University of Manchester. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for the generous introduction. My work is in linguistics and um, as, as you mentioned, I, I have done quite a bit of work in language documentation uh, of different languages. Uh, but my interest uh, in the past decade or so has been in the you know, Multilingual Manchester project, which, as you uh, mentioned, combines uh, teaching, research, and uh, public engagement um, and, and, and policy impact. And uh, the perhaps one of the unique features, other than the, the combination itself, is that our public engagement and policy impact is not just derived from the research, uh, but actually creates a setting for our research. So the engagement is an observation setting in its own right. And today, in fact, um, we are uh, on the website and in social media um, celebrating, along with others, European Day of Languages and using this opportunity to call for a multilingual cities movement, uh, which brings together researchers and practitioners and students from all over the world uh, in a call for a multilingual cities movement um, and also uh, celebrating the release uh, just earlier this month of a city language strategy or the initial pillars of a city language strategy that Manchester City Council has released in which we've, uh, into which we've had quite a bit of input, uh, which is, uh, I believe, the first of its kind, so a document on language diversity policy, the first of its kind as far as we're aware in any major European city. Of course, it's up to people to interpret what is a major European city. Um, I'd like to uh, start with a just brief definition of, of multilingualism, just so that we can have um, common ground, uh, because although it seems obvious and intuitive, um, it is uh, a matter of controversy, and just to give an indication, um, uh, some uh, years ago when the Auri scheme was launched, and, and one of the events, uh, one of the leaders of um, one of the other uh, Auri consortia um, uh, said, that they define multilingualism as people from different language studies working together. So bringing together researchers from German studies, French studies, and Spanish studies. I, I didn't say that in order to mock anybody. I'm just saying there are different definitions uh, of uh, multilingualism. That has led to a very fruitful discussion, actually, ever since. So, so sometimes uh, that um, uh, um, um, encounters with, with very different approaches uh, can be indeed fruitful. But, but I'll, I'll limit myself to definitions within the area of social linguistics. Um, and even there, there are different approaches. The so one definition that is kind of a common textbook definition that you find in introductory textbooks on multilingualism, multilingualism is several languages used in one location. Uh, and of course, we, you know, location, let's even take for granted that we can define what the boundaries of a location uh, are, Dublin and its suburbs. Um, so what is several languages? What, what does that mean? Does that mean different people speaking different languages? Or does that mean that languages can be used in, in different ways? Uh, it still doesn't give us a, a precise definition. Um, perhaps uh, a bit narrower definition is several languages used by the same group of people. So the group of people that we would perhaps less hesitantly define as a community. They have some kind of other interaction, organized interaction um, among themselves and share um, several different languages, but what does used mean? What does languages actually mean? So Irish is uh, read and pronounced and announced and proclaimed, but not necessarily spoken in Dublin by the majority of the population. So it's present everywhere, but is that a used language uh, or not? And you can go on and on with liturgical languages, or um, did you know that uh, in, in Britain, the, um, for a law to be passed, 
it has to be sent from the House of Commons to the House of Lords in, on a declaration written in Norman French. Uh, so that's one of the constitutional aspects that is not getting much attention these days. <laughs> Thanks, Alderman. Uh, and so, so, you know, so, so that's the official. It has to be written in Norman French, not in French, but in Norman French, for it to be passed um, to the attention of the Seigneur in, in the House of Lords. Uh, here we go. You can, that, 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 that gives a whole new angle into the introduction of French, of, into French linguistics, right? Um, so, so what does that mean? Um, even narrower is several languages used by one individual, making the individual multilingual. multilingual. Um, but again, what is used and what is languages? Um, we, we are tending to speak now more and more in the social linguistic discussion context of a linguistic repertoire rather than an additive cumulation of languages uh, as uh, sitting alongside uh, one another in the social linguistic side uh, in education that is paralleled uh, by um, um, approaches to what is referred to as translanguaging, or sometimes heteroglossia, and basically says that language boundaries are not just as, as obvious as they are you know, in grammar textbooks, um, but also with evidence, growing evidence from neurolinguistics that shows that we, we, you, you, we don't store languages differently in the brain. We might activate them differently for different reasons, but that has to do with what do we activate them for. Uh, not with the structures of the languages. And there's every, every neurolinguistic evidence that languages are active at all times. You can't just switch off um, a, a language. So, so all of that together tells us that the level of individual, and therefore also community of individuals and societies, we speak of a repertoire of linguistic structures of features rather than languages. Let's give you an example that um, somebody that, uh, this is a real life example of somebody I met last week at an event where I was speaking to um, legal practitioners about language. And this is a solicitor from a town called Bolton, which is a um, kind of a suburb, borough of Manchester. And he is of Pakistani heritage. And he approached me and said, well, he was born in England. Obviously, his language is English, and his language of education and work and so on is English. But he knows Punjabi from home. But he only knows the local dialect of Punjabi. He can't read or write Punjabi. He only uses it with his parents and some members of his extended family. He also knows Urdu, but he learned Urdu from working with clients who are speakers of different South Asian languages, and Urdu is the lingua franca, so that's how he picked up Urdu, and he can speak it, but again, not really write it. He has reading knowledge of liturgical Arabic because he attended a Quran mosque uh, school, and because he knows and can recognize and translate phrases in Arabic, he knows the script, and because he speaks Urdu, he can try and put two and two together and sometimes read a little bit of Urdu having learned Arabic and picked up some Urdu. And then he speaks what he calls Asian English, and he says he speaks that when his children come home from mosque school, and then they talk differently. They use a different accent in English, and they use words from Urdu and Punjabi and, and Arabic. And that's how he describes his own repertoire, and there's a continuum of different kinds of features and forms, not necessarily uh, a, a neat set of clearly defined and clearly demarcated languages that are kind of parallel to one another. So the whole concept of what languages are and what using languages are, is, and how we demarcate languages onto individuals, communities, and space is open for discussion. Um, so having said that, I just want to briefly um, create similar common ground perhaps around the notion of community. So when we talk of a demarcated spatial unit, as in a neighborhood, uh, we often use that as synonymous with community, um, but I guess that would assume that there is some kind of interaction among the people who live and inhabit that demarcated um, spatial uh, uh, unit, but that is not always necessarily the case. In public discourse, at least in, U in the UK, it's, it's very common to um, use the uh, term community um, as a kind of an opposition between the people and an institution. So you'd hear announcements such as the police is asking for assistance from the community. That is, people who are, you know, not part of the institution. Uh, or the University of Manchester puts on an annual community festival, as in, you know, we allow the people uh, to come and access who are not part of the uh, institutions. That's another uh, kind of notion of, of community. Um, but most frequently, and I see that very much in kind of local authority discourse um, in, in the UK, uh, community refers to kind of what is perceived as a local interest uh, group of people who share background and are identifiable as sharing background. So it's quite common in, in the north of England, at least, in local authority discourse to speak of a Muslim community or an Asian community, but I've never heard anybody speak of a Welsh community or a European community. 
Um, so in, in theory, that is possible. That is a possible semantic combination. Um, but it's not one that you pick up on if you search. Uh, somebody spoke before about, about, about online, uh, Maya, on, online um, uh, local authority minutes. Uh, so you can do that in Manchester as well. You can do these searches. You, you won't find Welsh community, European community, although there are clearly Welsh people or people from Wales. Some of them are Welsh speakers, um, European citizens, and, and so on, because they're not perceived as a particular interest group um, that is potentially in, in conflict or in contrast, at least, um, to, to the uh, majority. Um, in social linguistics, there have been critical approaches to community for quite some time. Fishman, one of the fathers of social linguistics, um, speaks of a speech community. Uh, and the idea there is to move away from language as grammar, as a set of rules, and into language as actually a community of users. But the Fishman, uh, the speech community in, in, in Fishman's sense, is a community that unites around the use of a particular language as, as a stable uh, indicator. Around the same time, we have a somewhat difficult approach from uh, the uh, linguistic ethnographer, Del Himes, who actually differentiates language with spe and speech community. So this, the community is stable and, and is, de is defined uh, through the social institutions and social interactions, um, but the language repertoire can be volatile. It can come and go, so they don't necessarily unite uh, around a particular um, language. And that gave rise to um, later notions of a speech community as a community of practice. So where there can be multiple, this is a bit similar, I guess, maybe to Apadurai's idea of scapes uh, that can overlap with, with one another. Um, so you can be a member of different communities of practice around language at the same time, because you can speak with some of your peers in a particular way in certain settings and with other people in a different way at the same time. And you can connect, and, and those things can, can change. So they're, they're permeable. So, so there isn't a fixed, permanent membership of a speech community, as in the Fishman sense. Um, but the um, um, community is one that unites around practice. That practice can be durable um, or less so. Um, and so the, that defines also the research agenda. So we're in the Fishman sense, uh, we're looking at the variables within something that is predefined as a speech community, uh, in the sense as uh, promoted by, by Eckert and Holmes and, and others, the community of practice, our subject of investigation is how do people practice language in different settings with, with different people, and that can um, change. Um, and then finally, inspired by, by Benedict Anderson's notion of uh, imagined community with reference to European nation states, um, there is some recent work looking at diaspora language communities as imagined communities, so the, the use of language and especially performative use uh, of language as an attempt to uh, create and celebrate a narrative um, that goes back to a shared place of origin. So language symbolizes that, um, and the imagination there is, is, is in the memory um, of the place of origin that is associated with the use of that language, specifically in the sociolinguistic uh, context. Um, and again, in the background, we have the approaches that I mentioned before to translanguage and heteroglossia, um, now kind of acknowledging that use of languages and transition among languages is fluid um, and uh, can be uh, strictly demarcated, but doesn't need to be and is not so necessarily naturally in people's everyday interactions. Um, so as a, as a final point of reference on the kind of theoretical preliminaries, I'd like to refer to uh, some recent work by Talia Blockland on um, community as urban practice. Um, this uh, is a kind of sociological, anthropological uh, work not related specifically to language. Um, but is uh, very interestingly, I find, kind of applicable uh, to much of what we're looking for when we're studying urban language communities today. Um, and, and Blockland looks at um, urban spaces as places where there is uh, potentially a very high density uh, of uh, different kinds of, of interactions. Um, and those interactions can take on different forms. They can be short-term encounters that are coincidental, or even regular, but not particularly intense, or they can take the form of an engagement, so a uh, volitional, um, um, kind of permanent, durable um, tie of some kind. They can be transactional by nature, that is utilitarian, uh, uh, driven by, by, by some kind of utility goal, or they can be social ties or bonds um, that uh, can be, again, encounter or durable engagement, uh, but around um, some sense of um, belonging and, and uh, emotional comfort. Uh, what is particular to the city, um, according to Blockland, is, is this notion of public familiarity. 
So things are public and they don't necessarily belong to us, uh, unlike a small village or a smaller community, but they are also familiar and we find ourselves there despite the lack of direct appropriation um, of those uh, elements, whatever they are. Uh, and that brings uh, her finally to, to the um, notion of uh, defining community as, as really a performance of shared narratives of various kinds around those different kinds of interactions, a way of framing in, uh, in, in a narrative uh, those different kinds of interactions as a form of belonging, uh, which can be mapped to a particular uh, location or space. So with all of that, my question here is, is how is community forged through the public linguistic performance in, in urban spa space? And I'll be looking at um, <coughs> data from what we call linguistic landscapes, um, that is the presence of language on public signs, simply because that's an entertaining and kind of easy access way to linguistics, which doesn't require the analysis of morphology and phonology and all of those kind of technical aspects that linguists otherwise uh, deal with. But that doesn't mean that this is kind of um, easy listening linguistics. Um, this is something that we are <laughs> taking very seriously and, and theorizing about um, these days uh, and over the past decade or so. Um, on our project Multilingual Manchester, we've developed a couple of uh, digital tools which I will be referring to because they've assisted us in the collection of some of the data that I'll be using. The first is a mobile app called LinguaSnap, which we use um, to uh, take images of multilingual signs, tag them with different descriptors, and we send it to a um, database where they appear online in this way, and the database, the map online can be filtered by the different descriptors, language, outlet, um, various other aspects. So you can take a picture and then you see it um, there like that. You can then also view the indicators or filter the map uh, by the descriptors, I mean, and also to get a street view um, of the, of the uh, image that was taken. And we have, we introduced this a few years ago for Manchester, but in the meantime, we have um, applications like this that, that are devoted to particular areas. So that is, they, they have uh, been uh, localized in terms of the information that we collect and the map uh, default that it defaults to on the database. Um, we have one for Melbourne, one for Jerusalem, one for St. Petersburg, one for Hamburg, and there's a couple more under development um, now. So there's kind of linguists now coming to your area soon. Uh, and the other tool is our Multilingual Manchester Data Tool, which sort of addresses the problem of that was addressed earlier today, um, census data, how useful are census data, what other data sources can we get about population, here specifically about language. And in Manchester, we have access in principle to such data sets such as you know, school records of first language, um, records of interpreting requests in hospitals, who requested an interpreter for Tigrinya, for example, um, and uh, library uh, materials that are being borrowed. Uh, so you scan the book in Bengali, and it says the book has been scanned and borrowed in Bengali and, and holdings as well, and a few other data sets on languages. Um, we've built this really as a proof of concept to show that if you take many data sets like that and triangulate them, you get a much more accurate picture and much more up-to-date picture. Of course, this relies on the availability of data, which means different institutions need to collect data, need to store them, need to share them. And then we even then still have technical difficulties of uh, putting the data together. But those are difficulties that we can sort of try and resolve in-house. Uh, but to get the data is, is not very easy, actually. Um, but once we get them, it allows us to do things like this. We can map them in different ways. So we create a heat map, for example, for different data sets, export uh, the data, then put them together again in, in different ways, and so on. So I'll be referring here and there to examples drawn from these data sets. Um, and my first example is, is this. Can you, so we can filter LinguaSnap on the right here to show different points. It's just a selection of takeaways that have a sign in Chinese. And you can see they're very much kind of dispersed around the city. Um, and from that, we can say from a neighborhood point of view that every neighborhood will have its Chinese takeaway. So it's a permanent feature of every neighborhood, not, not specifically a feature of a Chinese neighborhood. In fact, the Chinatown has the fewest um, Chinese takeaways because it has restaurants, so we do have a Chinatown. Um, and part of that feature of having a Chinese takeaway is having the, the ob completely obligatory um, um, name in Chinese characters, which nobody is expected to actually read. So it's a bit like Irish in Dublin. 
it's, it's there, it's present, but it's there for its visualization. Sorry. Well, I expect, you don't, you don't expect, do you read? You did, how, how many, I actually asked around, I asked how many people actually read the signs in Irish. I said, well, this is part of our heritage, but we don't need, need to read them because it's there. Well, anyway, uh, people are not expected to read this, and it's not top-down. Obviously, it's there, um, as, as, it's there to authenticate, um, although you can see they sell fish and chips. So what is it authenticated? It authenticates the Chinese. So the present, my point here is that the presence of Chinese script is an integral part of every neighborhood, every residential neighborhood in Manchester as an accompanying feature of the Chinese takeaway, and it does not necessarily indicate the presence of a particular Chinese community, certainly not one that is related to space. Um, contrast that with this sign, which is obviously in terms of materiality, it's a poster, more temporary. It was printed and distributed in a neighborhood in South Manchester a couple of years ago. And what this does, as you can see and guess, this basically addresses a sort of a gray area um, of money lending to, to kind of mortgages, or people who can't get a mortgage in the more conventional ways will turn to this. But obviously, the, all the instruction, all the information here is in English. And if you can't read English, then you know, this poster is not for you. Um, so why does it have in one word at the top in Urdu script the word mortgage? Uh, and it has that, the English word mortgage in Urdu script. And it has that because that attracts the attention of people of Asian background, even if they're not fluent in Urdu, um, and creates trust, which in this particular kind of area of service is particularly important. How do we know that? We simply, it's not a big, so we just rang the number and we asked. Um, <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, that kind of ethnography, light ethnography, uh, can be quite revealing. So here we have a, something that is in a very similar format to the Chinese takeaway. So basically one name, one label in other characters, whereas the information is, is actually there in English, but serving a very, very different kind of purpose uh, and, and giving us a, a different kind of practice community formation. So you don't have to read the Chinese uh, to, to participate in that particular transactional encounter. Um, and reading the Urdu here is something that encourages you and encourages trust and, and, and builds a basis on which to, to participate. This is another example uh, of a bakery, a bakery that sells what you see on the tin here, the naan bread. If you know what naan bread is, lafa. Um, so Erbil Naan Bread, it's called in English, and then um, and this is owned by Kurdish, by Iraqi Kurds, and the signs that we have below the or the scripts that we have there is uh, Sorani Kurdish Nano Khane Haulir, which means um, Haulir Bakery. Haulir is Kurdish in Kur uh, Erbil in Kurdish, and then we have in Arabic Mahbaz Arbil, which also means Arbil Bakery. So why does it not say Erbil Bakery in English? Because if it said bakery in English, you'd expect to find donuts and all sorts of other things. Um, whereas it, from a Middle Eastern point of view, a bakery basically just sells non-bread. Non you know? so, um, so the translations are not directly one-to-one -one translations. They're culturally adapted translations. Um, but what I wanted to point out here is the fact that uh, what is the purpose then of the Kurdish and the Arabic um, uh, signage? Uh, the Kurdish, obviously, is one that points to heritage, shared heritage, but then so does the Arabic. So this is a population that is bilingual from Iraq. Arabic is the state official language. Kurdish is the regional language and the domestic language. And both languages are imported. There isn't here a, a kind of a, a, a pick and choose that, you know, it's our ethnic language and we're going to leave, uh, you know, the official Arabic language aside when we're in the diaspora community. Both are imported. So the complexity of the linguistic identity is important and serves at the same time another purpose because it also addresses an, a non-Kurdish Arabic-speaking population in Manchester. So it both represents the complexity of one's own diaspora identity as well as a reaching out to other diaspora communities at no extra cost, so to speak. Um, now, if we map this, we have here on the left uh, the linguist map uh, representation of where we find signs in Kurdish, uh, in Sarani Kurdish in Manchester, and you can see they're very much clustered around a particular area. And on the right, we have the school census, um, first language Kurdish. So those who, uh, pupils who said that the first language is Kurdish, and although the, the formats are slightly different, um, uh, you can see that the same area, basically, where there's a high density of residential units with Kurdish as, uh, as their first language also overlaps with the area where we find signage in Kurdish. So there is clearly a spatial concentration uh, of the presence, uh, public presence of those um, signs. And moving now to another area, 
in North Manchester, uh, up here, which is a, a Jewish Orthodox uh, neighborhood in Manchester, has had a Jewish Orthodox community since the early 19th century, and it's one of the largest, and it's one of the largest Yiddish-speaking communities in the world. Yiddish and English are spoken in the home, now partly also Hebrew, because there's been quite a bit of immigration of Orthodox Jews from Israel to Manchester in the last few years. Uh, otherwise, Hebrew is used as the language of community writing and community public institutions. And so if we look at kind of the linguist map um, concentration in that particular area, the orange here represents signs in Hebrew, um, and you can see that there's a very clear clustering in one area, and quite close nearby is an area where there is a high um, density of signs in, in Urdu, in a Pakistani origin uh, neighborhood. Those are the ones in, I guess it's kind of red or brown or purple, uh, so on the right side. And in between, uh, there are small clusters of Polish shops or Polish signs around several Polish shops, and you can see that they too are concentrated and, and pretty much kind of um, segregated. So that's kind of just to give you kind of a mapping of the general area, and those signs uh, in Hebrew can be either cultural institutions, sometimes commercial, but there's very little commercial signage in, in Hebrew script. Uh, and what there is a lot of is in residential streets, such as this one, it's a typical one, and there's quite a few of those. Um, almost every household here is uh, Orthodox Jewish families, um, not all of them Yiddish-speaking. Some of them are Sephardi, uh, in fact, and or English-speaking and French-speaking. But they all have um, door signs like those in Hebrew script, which, you, which says family and then the name of the family. This family is called Schlesinger. Now you think that the kind of the family sign, the door sign, is something there for the postman or whatever, somebody to be able to identify. But obviously, you know, they, they're using only Hebrew script here. It's not for outsiders to identify. It's completely inwards looking. And the, the spatial convergence, the fact that you have the whole street, everybody has the identical signs, identical format, um, basically shows that it's inwards looking. It's a symbol of belonging to the local community, so both in space and in terms of cultural heritage, not necessarily in terms of language spoken in the home, but in terms of familiarity and the use of uh, Hebrew script in some form or other in, in their lives, um, and so clearly part of some kind of cultural practice community. There is, in fact, a compartmentalization of languages there. So some have this. This is the Goldstein family. And the tiny kind of note that says that the sign, family names, family sign is permanent. Um, the tiny note there reads, no free newspapers, please. Thank you in English. And that is the outwards looking. So that is the transactional encounter, the occasional encounter, that basically says keep away. So it's not engaging. It's actually uh, repelling, if you want to look at it that way. And it can be even more complex. This is a community where people travel a lot because they're transnational. They have relatives in Antwerp and London and New York and in Israel. And they also have many children. Um, the average is 8.9 children per um, woman in that community. So by far the highest in the, in the UK. Um, and so uh, they come back very often after giving birth. Uh, and so, so for both reasons, there is a common practice in the community to encourage kids to put up a welcome sign, which is almost always done in Hebrew or in Hebrew script, and is created by the children. Obviously, it's temporary, recurring, but temporary, and created. And here we also have the purchased uh, um, baby boy sign. That's that teddy bear in between the two signs. Uh, which is bought, so it's commercial, it's from the wider community, uh, but is still employed, and we again have the no, no newspapers, please, down there, which is kind of semi-permanent. So we have a hierarchy here of permanence, materiality, and a compartmentalization of, of different uh, languages. Just one more from that community. This is a girls' school in that same neighborhood, um, and as you may be able to see in the top, the sign is in English and in Hebrew, but I want to focus on that um, pink notice which is clearly a makeshift one attached to the door. If we zoom in on it, it says in Yiddish, and Yiddish is usually the, the spoken language of the community. There isn't much writing in Yiddish. But it says, Eltern was bringen oder nehmen nachheim Mädel von Kita Aleph soll nicht nur die main entrance. So that means parents who are bringing or taking home a girl from year one should only use the main entrance. So clearly in, in um, more transactional interactions that are still within the tight social bond of the community where Yiddish is the spoken language, Yiddish can also be written, but clearly Yiddish can be, can be intertwined with whatever bits and pieces of other repertoire components. Why is the main entrance English? Because the kind of the orientation 
things that you use in communication with outsiders are used in English, and then they're automatically integrated uh, in spoken language. And then you also make the effort of changing scripts and changing directions of writing uh, when you're on this um, uh, in, 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 in that as well. And, and so, so choosing a language is not choosing a language in the sense of a dictionary or textbook of what a language is. It's choosing a particular mode of communication which can be heteroglossic, translanguaging, and, 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 and enriched uh, like that. So, so an interim summary, we have this kind of performance of identity or belonging through these examples, um, which manifests itself through the use of language repertoire components or linguistic repertoire components that can include form, so choice of word as well as choice of script. Um, they can be differentiated according to elocutionary purpose. So what is the message purpose? What do you want the language to do to the addressee, keep them away or engage them or greet them and so on. And that in turn can reflect either kind of the bond and durable engagement or the casual encounter or transactional uh, nature. Um, all of that is neatly mapped onto to materiality, so different kind of materials that are used and different level of um, permanence uh, or temporariness of the signs. Um, and their positioning in convergent space um, is also part of the message. So we, we, it's kind of unthinkable, or at least let's just say unobserved, hasn't been observed so far, that a Jewish family that lives outside of that particular area would put a sign up in Hebrew on their door. So, so the, the spatial convergence and the spatial positioning partly conditions and, and uh, licenses uh, the choice of language in that particular um, way. Uh, so moving on now to Urdu, which is but the biggest uh, community language uh, in Manchester, we find um, this, the cluster up in the north, is the one that we saw before, quite close to the cluster of Hebrew. Uh, and otherwise, you can see it's, Urdu is widespread in the city. I'm going to focus on an area over here in South Manchester. Uh, this is known as Manly Park. There's a park in the middle, and there's um, kind of businesses and residential areas around it. And we'll take a small tour, and if you can see all of that. So we have over here a permanent sign in a closed retailer. So on the corner, the one side of the corner is in English, the other side is in Urdu. Um, over here we have, uh, within the park, there's a small city council um, kind of meeting room, meeting space. And that has on the window a semi-permanent kind of printed um, sign poster from the city council in English uh, for activities for elderly people and then written in handwritten in Urdu. But of course, that space had been specifically reserved for it to be handwritten in Urdu. So it's sort of semi-improvised, but also semi-planned uh, in that inviting people who are Urdu speakers. This is a um, temporary sign that advertises a particular cultural event uh, in Urdu and English posted on one of the shops there. This is a a uh, semi-permanent um, poster advertising the services of a hairdresser around the corner, again, in Urdu. This is a makeshift, so temporary handwritten notice uh, advertising a shipment of Pakistani kulfi in, in one of the grocery shops there. And these two are permanent signs set up by the city council. Now, the city council doesn't usually, unlike Dublin, it doesn't have bilingual signs, uh, but this particular location has also Urdu and city council signs, um, um, both identifying the location, the landmark, Manly Park, but also instructing um, not to feed pigeons uh, in, in uh, Urdu uh, as well. So all of this put together creates a kind of a linguistic space in the neighborhood. So when you walk in, it's an Urdu-speaking or Urdu-using neighborhood. Um, and that comes, first of all, through the public familiarity. No matter who, know, who owns it, we have that um, space that is marked uh, in Urdu. Um, there's a series of different kinds of interactions that are represented by those signs, so in, in the sense of defined above, encounters, transactions, social engagement, social ties of, of various kinds, cultural events, products, services, and so on, different levels of materiality and stability uh, of those signs accordingly. So it's very dynamic, uh, particular products that are available short-term, makeshift signs in Urdu are there to advertise them, the location is also landmarked um, in Urdu by the city council, so institutions are also involved. So we get the involvement of different kinds of players and actors here in creating that public familiarity uh, that is marked by Urdu there. Um, so um, pre-final point is uh, the um, 
what reality, linguistic reality, do we find for what is uh, called in, in the local authority jargon emerging versus resilient communities? Manchester is a place where, in fact, quite a lot of attention is given uh, to new arrival populations, refugees and immigrants, uh, in planning of, of services. Um, um, quite a bit, and it's very much part of the city council ethos and declared policy strategy to take into account uh, equal access and integration uh, and so on. There is partly what you know, some people will describe as a kind of a neoliberal take on all of that, the idea of community resilience. So the city council says, you know, communities that are emerging are those who, from the city council point of view, are not known to the city council, where the city council does not have a channel of communication, and where the city council uh, feels that it needs to provide a lot of supporting services, supporting services being services that enable people to access services. Um, so information about how to access key services, such as employment or, or, or paying bills and, and so on. And translation and interpreting is, by definition, an accompanying secondary service, a service there to allow people to use services. Um, and resilience is perceived as communities being able to do that for themselves, so organizing for their own people. That presupposes that there is a unit that is definable as a community and that there are people within that unit who feel the responsibility to do that with others, others of their kind so perceived. So the idea is that there must be some kind of feeling of affinity for some people to want to be doing something for others. Um, and that idea of resilience is basically, you know, critics will say the city council trying to rid itself of the responsibility and saying, you know, we're going to hand it over to you so you develop the resilience so that you're not a burden on us. Nevertheless, I, you know, my own feeling is that this is a very sincere narrative by and large in Manchester City services. So, so the idea to want to engage and to listen to communities, and I have um, played a part in that in some communities that I have access to where I've been approached in my, my research team by the City Council, can you give us some information or give us access to these communities so that we can uh, engage uh, with them? And that puts an interesting take, which is a whole separate kind of discussion about the role of the university uh, as, you know, the civic university as a mediator uh, between um, um, local authority, perhaps, and communities. So adopting, just for the, set, for the case sake of the argument, the, the city council notion of emerging versus resilient communities, I just want to show how some of our tools can give a, a quick snapshot uh, of that. And we're looking at signs in Arabic. Arabic is now the, probably the fastest growing language uh, in uh, Manchester, uh, a varied population. You can see a huge distribution of signs in Arabic, much of it kind of just from the past decade. Um, and in different parts uh, of the city. And if we look at the school census, again, this is kind of first language Arabic. In one area, you can, you can see so that, that there's a density in, in certain areas of the city. And if we contrast that with statistics on interpreting in Arabic in uh, GP practices, so general practitioners, so doctor surgeries, local doctor surgeries, so people who went to the doctor but needed an interpreter for Arabic in that same year. And you put them side by side, you know, there's kind of a center there. If we put them side by side, we see that, you know, there's overlap, but not everybody who speaks Arabic needs an interpreter. That's the easy reading. Of course, we're, we're looking at different samples. So school children, um, you know, will be families that are more established, uh, but, but generally kind of it's, it's younger families. So they have school-aged children by and large. It's not a, an elderly population, not a very young population of immigrants um, either. So they are comparable, but it means that there is a population that partly overlaps with the one that's established, but not entirely. Um, uh, so most of the Arabic speakers do not actually need interpreters. So they're established enough to know uh, English, uh, but some in a particular area um, um, do. Uh, that's for, again, this is the problem that, you, you know, we, we get data for some years from this institution, for other years from that institution. We actually rarely get a year when we can compare the data, and we rarely get data for, for, for several um, consecutive years because the person we spoke to changed and it takes time to kind of make friends with somebody else and do them a favor in return and, and, and so on. Uh, so so that it's all kind of very, very um, uh, volatile. Uh, nevertheless, what I wanted to show is the reshaping of Manchester's famous Curry Mile. Curry Mile is branded in Manchester and even officially there are signs saying Curry Mile. Um, and this goes back to the years where it was really, you know, most of what you found there was Curry restaurants. And now you find actually very, very few. And most of it looks like this. This is, of course, nighttime, daytime, but, but that, you know, if you look beyond that, most of the signs are in Arabic um, now. And LinguaSnap um, shows us that. So if you look at the, the orange here is Arabic. 
uh, the blue is Urdu, and, and there's some others. Um, so most of the commercial signs on that stretch that is still referred to officially as the Curry Mile are actually in Arabic. Uh, so the, the actual face of the neighborhood changes uh, much more quickly, and the linguistic landscape is an indicator of that much more quickly than the official recognition. Um, and that also shows us that there's a very rapid jump in the city council jargon of what is emerging to what is resilient. So very, very quickly there's the establishment of, if you look at, if you think of linguistic landscapes, as what do they express? They express the presence of a business that markets in Arabic. So that means it has the confidence to put its language on the public um, appearance. It also thinks the investment is worth it because branding itself as Arabic speaking will attract custom from Arabic speaking, which means that there are people who have the spending power uh, to be customers and are to be attracted through Arabic. So all of that are, using the city council's own uh, notions, kind of uh, indicators of resilience. And they are emerging very, very fast, whereas in the city council kind of approach generally, the Arabic community is still considered an emerging community because it doesn't have its established spokespersons and so on who negotiate with the city council. Uh, and my final point concerns um, transcending language boundaries. And this involves different kinds of encounters. And the first is the idea that transcending language boundaries is, a, is necessary in order to clarify and um, contain um, and run rights and obligations. As I was saying, the City Council in Manchester does not normally uh, use uh, bilingual or multilingual signs, but punctually in particular locations, it addresses particular audiences, not just for this um, connection between location and known target group by language, but also location, target group, particular anticipated behavior, and therefore need to regulate behavior in the point of view of those who are the owners or initiators of the sign. So we find things like don't feed the pigeons in Bengali and Urdu, or don't drop food in Arabic and Urdu. You never see those signs, and this is, I, I guarantee, because we've been looking at this for years now, you never find that in Polish or in Romanian. Nobody ever writes the city council, don't feed the pigeons in Lithuanian <laughs> or in Romanian. This is something that is considered a problem for particular ethnic communities. Uh, you do find on a lake no angling in Eastern European languages, not in Arabic, not in Urdu. So there is some kind of idea, so there's this kind of some interpretation of what is um, behavior that, does, that fails to comply with anticipated norms, how does that map onto particular groups, and then action is taken. So, so how does that relate to our discussion? This is sort of, from the city council's point of view, a positive measure to include people in our community. This is now community as the bigger kind of the community of those who comply with expected behavioral norms in Greater Manchester. And so transcending the language boundary, if necessary, is a way of bringing people into our community, almost the opposite of what community means in the sense of the identifiable other. Um, coming back to the notion of, pra of uh, practice community, we find uh, use of transcended language boundaries around transactional encounters. So here's um, an example of a sign that is used uh, um, in several different places in Manchester in butcher shops. These butcher shops are typically integrated into um, small corner shops that, that sell food and other products. Um, but here, obviously, we have a representation of the product um, visually in terms of imagery. It doesn't quite look like that when you pick it up from the butcher, but, but, but it, it kind of signals the product. But the first line says, Bismillah rahman rahim So in Arabic, in the name of Allah, the gracious and merciful, um, and that obviously addressed the Muslim population, and any Muslim, whatever their language is, is able to read uh, this particular line, of course, you know, anybody who learned any kind of prayer, and if they can't read it, they can recognize it, they recognize the shape of it, and they know how to say it, even if they can't read each and every letter. So even the most rudimentary knowledge of prayer language in, in Muslim prayer language Arabic, um, that is recognizable. So clearly the bigger framing is a shared cultural practice community. Then we have the labeling of the key products in three distinct languages that are associated with Muslim populations. We have halal gosht, which is Urdu, uh, halal meat. Then we have laham dajaja halal, which is Arabic, which says actually something a bit different. It says meat, chicken, halal. So halal meat and chicken. And then we have again halal meat and chicken in Somali. 
So three different languages. So here there is some kind of targeting of particular populations, uh, again, around transactional encounter, but under the overall framing of a shared cultural practice community, which is, which is kind of the bigger overarching community. And then we have what we call the orientation line. So ubiquitous kind of always kind of in, 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 in English. In fact, in, in uh, kind of a foreigner English, opening hours, opening uh, hours. Um, so the shared practice of orientation in the English-speaking city is in English, and that is shared by all populations. That is not translated. That is kind of shared. So we have different levels of different message content, different communicative acts, uh, different compartmentalization of languages around the building of a practice uh, community. Again, the practice itself defined in a layered thing, the practice of buying the product, the practice of adhering to a particular cultural norm, the practice of shared orientation in the shared um, space of the city. This is a um, group of um, Arabs who own a frozen yogurt shop, which is on the university campus uh, road. And the university campus has, we have about 15% Chinese um, students, and they like frozen yogurt, and they can pay for it because they pay international student fees, and they're all kind of one-child families, and they enjoy their frozen yogurt. Now, this shop is a, <laughs> is a congregation space for Arab students who come and speak Arabic, and it's a space where um, Chinese students buy those products, and so it's advertised in Chinese not in any other language, but the Chinese translation is... So how do we know that? We, we also, you know, alongside these digital tools, we also do ethnography. We go in, we eat frozen yogurt, we speak to them, we chat to them in different languages, and we, we kind of get the stories. Um, and that's how I know what I, what I know uh, about this. But, but clearly an attempt to, for a particular transactional thing, without any pretension of shared values or shared cultural space or anything like that, uh, using local knowledge... Uh, to, to actually embed that into the, the business case. And this is quite often the case. We find many of these kind of posters. This is one for um, parcel distribution where we find it uh, written in Urdu, Gujarati, and Arabic, uh, and English, sending parcels. So somebody takes the trouble to translate the poster into different languages. This is a taxi training school. Now, you can't do a taxi license in Manchester if you don't know English because the test is only in English. And nevertheless, they advertise here in Arabic, Somali... Um, what do we have there? Persian and Urdu. So, sorry, in, in this is Arabic, Urdu, Somali, and Persian. Now, nobody in Manchester speaks all of those languages, but they, these people have local... They actually know that in this neighborhood where they're advertising it, those are the languages that are spoken. And they know, not, not, they know that not because they accessed our data tool or got census data, they just know that from local knowledge, from daily interaction, and make that investment. Um, this is one of my favorites. This shop is owned by uh, Afghan people, but the writing, apart from English, is in Arabic. The menu is, is displayed in the shop selectively. We eat there quite often. Uh, sele selectively, so it's in English, and some of it is translated into Arabic. Uh, the people speak Dadi uh, in the kitchen. Um, and here there's a makeshift um, sign. You can see printed signs on the window. And the one on the right says, free drinks for people from Malaysia. And the one on the left is in Russian. It says, free drinks, but not people from Russia, because they would go bankrupt. It says, free drinks for Kazakhs and Uzbeks. Um, so somebody has some very fine-tuned local knowledge, knowing that on the university campus there are Malaysian students and there are Kazakh and Uzbek students who like this kind of food and also know Russian. Um, so, so a lot of kind of local knowledge goes, goes into this in order to kind of reach out. In those. And, and this is a, all of this together amounts to another kind of community of practice, a community of practice for whom for which multilingualism is a kind of a shared entity and something that uh, is worthwhile indulging in and embracing and engaging with to some extent because there is a commercial and perhaps also social uh, reward um, from. And which brings me to my, my final set of examples. So some people simply bring, put up multilingual signs uh, as gestures. So this is just, you know, welcome in Arabic and Somali and uh, Urdu, Persian, happens to be the, the same. The style of script is, is Urdu um, here. Or we have what I showed you before, a, a school, this is just a primary school, that knows exactly what families there are in the neighborhood, and so says welcome in Persian, and in uh, Gujarati, and in Punjabi, and in Somali, and in Arabic. Uh, again, just as a, as a token, uh, but to integrate this thing, you know, we're a community of everybody embracing uh, everybody, 
Uh, once a year, there are elections on the university campus to different you know, offices of the student union. And this person was uh, a candidate for women's officer in the student union and had all her signs here translated into different languages. So, so the multilingualism here in the translation is, again, the symbol of uh, whatever it is was her platform um, that she wanted to, to represent uh, there. Uh, and much of our work on languages and enumerating languages has been celebrated. We've been criticized um, for this by some people whom I shall not name unless you ask me later. Um, and they've, you know, oh, this enumeration of language, demolinguistics and whatever. Uh, we had all sorts of insults thrown at us. Um, but we, had, we, you know, we published research and that research then got quite a bit of newspaper coverage. So this is the independent newspaper, which is a very big newspaper in the, in, in the UK. Um, and this is the local Manchester Evening News that put a, a picture of me there. Um, and this is actually the CC in Hopkins. CC is the um, chief constable. So this is the most important police officer in the greater Manchester region retweeting the newspaper article. So that's kind of one of the you know, authorities you know, saying, oh, we're proud to have 200 languages um, in our uh, city. And, and that has become a bit of an emblem. So for the last two years, uh, Manchester has been celebrating UNESCO International Mother Language Day. I've always said they should call it Mother and Father Language Day, but it's officially called Mother Language Day. So that's an official celebration of the city now. And as I mentioned before, um, uh, just earlier this month, the city council has released a kind of a policy paper on uh, language diversity. So language diversity and around this thing of, of 200, I mean, you can't count languages, but 200 languages is a nice number. And, um, and that 200 languages become kind of a symbol. And you, find, you see it everywhere in the city uh, that people speak of, oh, we're a city of 200 languages, you know, the museums and city council and hospitals and, and so on. Um, so we see uh, language serving as a, as a shared narrative, even just the use of language itself, even without the content, even just the use of a particular script on the door sign of a, a family name um, creates a shared narrative of, of a permanent bond, um, especially in, in convergent space. Uh, or we can see language as a value adder, adder in transactional encounters, which requires an investment. So people go out of their way in order to get that particular repertoire. They have to collect local knowledge, find somebody to do the technical side, pay for it, uh, but in exchange of some kind of reward in the transactional encounter. Uh, but it can also, it also become a celebration of public familiarity, again, to use Blockland's terms. And if we take Manchester's, Blockland, uh, Manchester's public familiarity as being partly characterized by the multiplicity of language, then the multiplicity of language itself becomes an emblem uh, for local identity and that deriving from the, the shared space that is perceived by um, participants. Thank you very much.